Welcome to the Gotham Sports Report Podcast on 89.1 FM WNYU. Here are your hosts, Jack Dweck, Joe Kurtz, and Morris Zarif. Hello and welcome to the Gotham Sports Report. Guys, we had one hell of a week this week. This has probably been one of the hottest week for New York sports in a long time. Not on the sports front, on the front office side, on the moves outside of the teams themselves. But we have a lot to unpack today. Um, But first, like what I was thinking this week is that there's a lot of hope in New York for the first time. Hear me out on this. Take the Nets, for example. The Nets, for the last 20 years, since probably 2000, 2001 seasons, they haven't actually been in the conversation for a title. The Yankees just put out the biggest contract of the offseason so far, $90 million, uh, for basically their team MVP. You have the Jets hiring their new coach. You have the Mets, after the Lindor signing last week, still looking to add more people potentially in George Springer. All of these additions that we're having, all of these great moves from teams, I don't think we've seen something like this. But I think that the biggest move that we saw this week was in the Nets trading for James Harden. You do not see a move that's this big, that gets this much national attention every day. This is a move. This is a once-in-a-generation move, a trade this big that could alter the course of your franchise, that could either set you back 10 years after you gave up so much picks or could put you in that title conversation, which I think that the Nets just did, guys. And they give up a lot of picks, but as a Net fan, you have to ask yourself, if they win one title, are you willing to mortgage your future for maybe the next five years after that? And I think every single Nets fan is going to say yes to that question because we've been deprived of winning. We really haven't been in the conversation. We've been the little brother to the Knicks, even though we've been winning more over the last decade. But when we have James Harden, when we have Kevin Durant, and when we have Kyrie Irving on one team all balling out at once, this is unprecedented basketball. I think this could be one of the greatest in terms of talent trio of all time and it's something you can look forward to and actually consider them as real contenders even more so than what they were before i just want to go through the trade for all the fans that don't know so the nets traded away four first round draft picks three pick swaps in the next seven years jared allen and Karis Levert for who unfortunately came out with the news today about the kidney and we wish him well for james harden Harden is one, of the be- is one of the best offensive players of this generation, and I'm excited to see him in a Nets uniform as we did see him tonight against the Orlando Magic. I see this team as a team that improved a little bit offensively, a little bit, but they really downgraded defensively and rebounding, losing Jared Allen. Jared Allen was one of those pieces that I think could have been helpful for them in the long run, guarding possibly and beat in the playoffs, or guarding maybe even – Anthony Davis in the playoffs because I, as you saw tonight, the Andre Jordan is definitely not that guy. If they pick up another big man, whoever it is, maybe in the buyout market, I think this trade is definitely well worth it. Getting one of the most prolific offensive scores in this generation. It's never bad to have too many offensive scores. And it also gives them the leeway for, let's say another Kyrie going AWOL moment. 
All right, the Nets, when they made this trade, they got three of the top 10 players in the NBA. So they went from players, young players, I agree, and Karis LeVert and Jared Allen to the three three top 10 players. I don't think we've ever seen a team. Um, you could maybe argue the Golden State Warriors at their peak, but I don't think we've seen a team with three top 10 players and one of the best offensive talents in James Harden and Kevin Durant that the NBA has ever seen. These are two of the best offensive players in NBA history. To have them on the court at the same time when the Nets were already a top three scoring team in the NBA coming in to this trade, you're going to see an offensive juggernaut in the Nets. The problem that I'm seeing with this team is defensive rebounding and turnovers. If the Nets aren't able to come together as a unit with their players actually showing up to games in Kyrie Irving and, and James Harden playing together and getting that camaraderie with the team that he has to for this team to gel together and not have nine turnovers tonight, which he had, and Kevin Durant having turnovers as well, seven turnovers against the Knicks, that's how this team is going to gel. If they limit the turnovers and could find a way, either by getting a new player uh, and making an addition with one of the exemptions that they got from the trade, or finding someone on the market, they're not going to have a chance against teams with big men like the 76ers and Embiid. I just don't see it happening. And every basketball fan knows that probably the greatest talent the Nets gave up was Karis LeVert, but the biggest hit that they took was giving away Jared Allen. But I also want you – like, he has been playing stronger, but he's he really is still barbecue chicken against Embiid and Jokic. It's not like he was, like, defending Jokic in his last game. Like, he was getting bodied down. But I do think it's going to hurt the Nets. But when the Nets signed KD and Kyrie, you knew they were all in, and you knew they were all in for a move this offseason when they were in talks for James Harden, and you knew that they were going to be all in now. And they're going to do anything that they can to hopefully keep KD in Brooklyn past his three years. Uh, option and to make him happy in the time being and just like Mara said they need an insurance policy because Kyrie Irving's been AWOL and you need someone there that would that could be better than Kyrie Irving level talent that would keep Kevin Durant happy Joe Joe I agree with you that Jared Allen might not be the best or the toughest center in the league he's not that big guy that you want crashing the glass but he's a player out there that's improving from game to game He's a guy that's young. He's 22 years old. He's a guy that you want to build your team around. They traded that. They traded a 22-year-old. And now who are they relying on? They're relying on DeAndre Jordan, a guy who looks like he's getting older every game, a guy who looks like he's not willing to put in that time to run after rebounds, to, to stay and crash the defensive glass. It just doesn't look like he's willing to do that at his age. And, and at I know this it's not, point in I his know. career, I just don't see how you're willing to rely on that player, to rely on DeAndre Jordan when you're looking to get a championship, to have that big of a deficiency on your team. It's huge. It's a glaring hole. I know it's not pretty, but two things. You can't rely on Jared Allen for the future because he's a free agent after the year, and then it's 80 mil over their cap, so he's not coming back, okay? He's going to get $20, $25 million a year. He's not coming back. Let's just, let's just put that out there. And second, when you are getting a once-in-a-generation talent in James Harden, the guy who averaged 35-plus points per game in a season twice, who's won an MVP, who's an eight-time All-Star. If your biggest hit is Jared Allen in a position that you're already weakened, and I know it's weakening you more. But you're not just sacrificing Jared Allen for this year. So if you have Harden, you have Harden for this year and the next year. You have Harden for this year and the next year, right? Yes. You have to think about I know – 
fans don't want to think about this, but if you're a general manager, you're not going to sacrifice the next 10 years into the future with the next, which the Nets did until I think, I believe 2028, they're giving up picks. You're sacrificing eight years into the future for one year. And I'm sorry, I know that the Nets really need this or they really want this title, but you, you can't sacrifice eight years of the future, eight years where you're making your fans pay to come to games and you know that you gave up your shot just like the Nets did trading for, for Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett years ago, which they're still struggling to come back from. They, they basically came back from that this year or last year after that trade. So you're going to do the same thing again and sacrifice your future for one chance. One chance after this that, year. That's where the faith in the front office comes in for their net fan because the Nets haven't had power to their own first-round pick since 2014, and they've still been able to pull around this – uh, pull around this, this comeback and they've still been able to draft Kyrus, uh, Kyrus Levert and Jared Allen and they've still been able to develop players and they still have guys like Bruce Brown that they're getting from the Pistons and and uh, Reggie whatever his name is they're just Reggie throwing out there they're putting yeah Reggie Perry and they're putting together these players you have to have faith in your front office they're not not going to have first round picks they have swaps you're going to have the worst of the pick but they're still going to have a pick in the 20s and they can still get the Jared Allen again and they can still draft Kyrus Levert again one aspect of this trade that I just want to hit is that this trade completely depletes their bench. They've also traded Torian Prince, which I forgot to mention. So one, they really don't have a bench. If another guy gets injured, maybe a Landry Shaman or a TLC. It's just, it's a bad for the future, not for the future, for right now, even if they have a bad injury, whether it's uh, a torn ACL or whatnot, they're really depleted. And I don't know if, those three guys will be able to help out in the long run in, in towards the finals contention this year. That's the, one of my biggest issue because issues because they really just took off their whole bench for a gorgeous starting five. Don't get me wrong. It's the, the best starting five in the NBA, in my opinion. But their bench is really somewhat depleted. Well, I now. think that what the Nets have showcased, especially with Kyrie being out and not having Harden, obviously, in those deals yet in the games – that he was out for the five games, you see how this bench could work with Kevin Durant. And you see how this bench does work when the stars aren't in the lineup. People like Bruce Brown stepping up. People like Joe Harris when he came off of the bench stepping up. These players can lead you to wins. They don't have to because you don't have to rely on them because you have three stars, but they can, in dire circumstances, be relied upon. And I think you're seeing Steve Nash put them in these circumstances, putting a guy like Bruce Brown and Reggie Perry in with six minutes left in the fourth quarter of a close game because he doesn't have Kyrie in the lineup because he didn't have um, because he didn't have Kevin Durant due to his COVID protocols because he didn't have James Harden yet from the trade you saw these bench guys being able to put in minutes in the game so that when you have those three people your three stars in the lineup I know I could rely on my bench I know I could rely on a guy like Bruce Brown to come in and bring energy so I don't think that the bench is really a problem or that Sean Mark sees a problem because he's so good at finding those diamonds in the rough. Yeah, I, I just wish that they were able to pick up a big man and steal, maybe like P.J. Tucker from Houston or JaVale McGee as a throw-in from the Cavaliers because they have an excess of big men. Because I think their depth, which went from like one of the strongest benches in the NBA to one of the weakest, isn't that weak still. I still think it's... Like, you have the three stars. You'll be fine on that part. I think the only part you're just going to see struggling in is the defensive rebounding and the big man defense guarding Anthony Davis and hopefully the finals if they make it. But 
I wait, just wait, wish. Wait, 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 wait. I just want to go back on the fact. Can you just call PJ Tucker a big man? He is a big man. No, no, no. He's not a big man. He's a six-five forward that the Rockets attempted. And, to where, and where does he play? What he plays? Um, a, no, no, no. He attempts to play. No, no, no. He attempts to play the five, and he clearly couldn't guard anybody in last year's playoffs. And under which head coach and with which teammates? Under Mike D'Antoni, hold on, hold on, hold on. Under Mike D'Antoni, who did coach, who is coaching on this Nets uh, team right now. Either way, either way, regardless of P.J. Tarker, if you think that he has the ability to rebound or not, it's an example of a guy that the Nets need. The Nets need big men. The Nets don't have anybody other than Nicholas Claxton, who's over seven feet. Of course, there's the the argument of Kevin Durant seven feet or not, but... You don't have that big man that, that could crash the glass and get you rebounds. You just don't. You don't. And I don't think that the money worked in the trade where the Met, where the Nets were taking on $40 million in salary, but they could actually uh, trade for one of those big men that you mentioned. So I think that was the problem there where the Nets are now going to have to – they have two open slots because of this trade after trading Rodion's Kourouk and um, Torian Prince as well. So they have two slots if they could find someone off of the street. I don't think that's the problem. I think – the bigger problem is just the defense in general from these offensive players where can we see Harden do what he did against the magic and get four steals? Could we see players like Kevin Durant stepping up to take a Joel Embiid with no one else available? Um, I don't know. I look for them to attempt to pick up honestly is Andre Drummond. He is most likely on the move for, um, Cleveland at this point because there's no slots for him and he's uh, just an expiring contract. There's not going to be a buyout market market for him, but he may get traded and then possibly be bought out by the following team that uh, picks up his contract. So I'm just looking for that. I'm do look. It's finals or bust for the Nets, and I do think they'll get to the finals in this week Eastern Conference, overrated Eastern Conference, and I just don't think I don't see them beating the Lakers due to their defense. But let's get to move on. All right, so speaking about great talent and adding great talent, the New York Yankees added probably one of the biggest free agents available on the market, a guy who really wanted to come to back to New York and really wanted to be here where he spent his last two years. DJ LeMayhew, probably one of the best players New York has seen in the last couple of years, comes back. For $15 million annual salary, a six-year deal for $90 million. Guys, I was shocked when I saw this. I was shocked that the Yankees were able to pull this off, a 90-day holdout to get DJ LeMahieu, one of the best players in the majors. And then I hear on Friday that the Yankees have signed Corey Kluber. And when I looked at the salary that the Yankees gave $10 million to Corey Kluber and $15 million to DJ LeMahieu. $11 million, sorry, to Corey Kluber and 15 to DJ LeMahieu. I was shocked. How could the Yankees do this? I think Just, it's a... Uh, you go ahead, Mars. No, no, Joe, Joe, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, as a Yankee fan, the way I look at LeMahieu's contract is I compare it to the 12 for 24 he got before. So when he first signed with the Yankees two years ago, he was getting paid $12 million a year. He comes, finishes top five in MVP twice, and he's only getting $15 million. That's a steal for the Yankees on the average annual base. Yes, he's getting six years, but as a Yankee fan, you look at it like you're paying him for the four years of under the 90 million, that's 22 a year, 
and then it's just whatever you're paying him to float around for the extra two years. If he's if he's a good bat, he's a good bat. He's 38 years old. It's fine. You're gonna you're willing to take that 15 million dollar hit. So that's a great part for both the Yankees who get Lemayu on a cheap contract and with a low hit to their uh to their um tax, and then there's a good deal for Lemayu because he gets the security. But with the Kluber the Kluber signing, I think it was a good signing, but for 11 million dollars, it's something I got to question. It's someone who's coming off uh surgery and hasn't pitched in two years. He is on the older side. He doesn't throw high. He throws low 90s, high 80s. He has good precision in his pitches, but he's been hurt and hasn't been able to pitch for a while. I think the one thing the Yankees were looking at is the fact that he has been rehabbing with their team doctor. So they, compared to any other team, had the best look at him and probably have the best read on his medicals. So that's probably why they were able to go forward and give him the $11 million. But I still think it's something, it's a lot, especially if you're going to give DJ LeMay 15 to give Corey Kluber, who's been out for two years, $11 million. I'm not talking pros and cons versus the contract. I just want to talk about Corey Kluber and himself right now. Kluber is three years removed from being an AL Scion contender and pitching in big postseason games for the Cleveland Indians. Just remember that. One aspect of Corey Kluber that I love is that he has a different arm angle than all the other pitchers on the Yankees right now. When you were looking at the Tampa Bay Rays uh, rotation last year in the bullpen. They, I remember seeing this diagram of all different pitchers with all different arm angles to give hitters different looks. I think having Kluber out there and get, uh, showing a different look for potential offenses like the Rays and the Astros and the Indians and the Twins and all those teams in the postseason, it will be a huge benefit to the Yankees. Another benefit also, he's, he could be a mentor to guys like Clark Schmidt and Mike King and Debbie Garcia for the future. He couldn't be, uh, he has a lot of experience. So he could talk, he could tell them what to do. He could show them Listen, how to I understand, Mars, I understand you're willing to pay for experience and you're willing to pay for playoff experience. But $10 million to a free agent pitcher who has pitched 36 innings in the last two years. I said that 35 years old. 35 years old. And you have better pitchers, frankly, on the market that you could get for the same price. You could get a Jake Odorizzi who does have uh, an injury. No, 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 better no, no. Than, How about better this? for no. the money that you Kluber that has you the get. most upside. Kluber has the most upside. If he could get somewhere between that, where he was in 2017, if he could get somewhere Why near. Why would you pay $10 million? No, no, One uh, second. Why would you pay $10 million for a pitcher who hasn't pitched in the last two years and is 35 years old when you could get back a pitcher that they're you know is pitching well they in New York? They are overpaying him. Yes. No pitches well in New York. They are Masahiro Tanaka. Him. You know that you could get back a guy like Masiro Tanaka maybe on a two or three year they deal. Know you know he's from. reliable and he gives you innings. But you, you know, know that he gives you innings and you know he pitches well in the playoffs. They clearly couldn't win with Tanaka. Um, I love Tanaka. He's my favorite person of all time. But they couldn't win a World Series with him. They couldn't win with Tanaka. That, that's they Tanaka's didn't win a World Series with him. Yankees can't hit in the playoffs, and they can't hit for average in the playoffs. That's not Tanaka's fault. I didn't blame. No, no. But they clearly didn't. They wanted to change something up. Maybe change oh, something up I'm by a getting a guy who hasn't pitched in two years and giving him ten million dollars when you're giving an MVP. I agree. And you held out for three paid. months for an MVP. Look, if he could go back to the zone to where he was in 2017 and 2018. If you could go he back, could. so give him a contract with. The I agree. Kids. No, no. Give him a contract for three or four million dollars. Look, I get it. We, Otherwise, we you're to, giving ten million dollars when you have paid him eleven million. They paid him eleven million. Yes, we get it. Look, if he could get somewhere near that, he'll be more more than well worth eleven million. They took a flyer on a guy who could be 
who could be electric. Yes, they overpaid him. I'm not denying that. But if he could be somewhere near the guy that he was in 2017 and 2018, they're in the World Series, in my opinion. Imagine facing Cole in game one, Kluber in game two, Seve in game three. That's scary. That is scary. When you're a Yankee fan, when you look at this rotation before the Kluber signing, what you were really missing is someone that you could point to and say, I trust him to take the mound in game two or three of the playoffs against our division rivals to pitch us to the win. Because last year, when we went into the playoffs and we had our season on the line with Jordan Montgomery, even though he got the win, every Yankee fan had a mini panic attack every single pitch he threw. Every single pitch. What has been the biggest problem for the Yankees rotation in the last three years? It's been injuries. So why wouldn't you go out and get a reliable starter, a starter that you could rely on to stay healthy for 162 games, which Rob Benford said that the season is going to be 162 games this year. So why wouldn't you get a pitcher that you could rely on for a full season? Why would you go and get someone and spend that $11 million on someone that you know that you can't afford to lose? You know you can't afford to lose a pitcher and rely on these guys again to rely on these on these minor league pitchers again. And the Yankees go out year after year and trust their training staff, which lets them down every single year. One big aspect you're forgetting, this is the first full season of having this, this training staff. Because remember, they had to implement what the old training staff was doing in 2020. But now in 2021, they can implement their new stuff, um, Credit and those guys. So now um, I want to see what they have. Maybe they're better. They're obviously better than the old training staff because every single year, uh, somebody would get injured. But this is the first season where we could actually see if the injuries are going to take place and whatnot. And they even did a better job last season with the starting pitching. They did lose Paxton, but not much else after that. So my biggest concern with this was that the Yankees had $20 million left to spend to stay under the luxury tax and sign a pitcher after signing DJ LeMahieu. And they decided to go for a pitcher that has not pitched. In the last two years, he's pitched 36 innings. And that is the guy that you go out and get when there's other pitchers on the market. The free agent market hasn't really developed. They set the point, the market price for pitchers. They could have set it lower. They decided to give $10, uh, $11 million to a pitcher that hasn't pitched in two years, a couple of days after a showcase. The Mets went to that showcase, and they clearly weren't interested. It was reported from the day that he put on that showcase. So the Yankees obviously saw something that no one else saw if they were willing to give him that much money. That's why I'm concerned. And that's what I was pointing out to you because he was, wor- he was rehabbing under their team doctors. So they probably have a read on their medicals that no other team saw, and they probably had inside information that they thought they had to put a move on him instantly because also when he had his, his performance for all the other teams – Everyone was saying he was outperforming what they expected and he was, his market was moving fast. So I'm assuming he got an offer from other deal. Uh, as a Yankee fan, I trust Brian Cashman to make savvy moves. And I'm assuming that some other team offered him a deal close to what he got from the Yankees and he, and the Yankees just outbid them. Classic Yankees. All right. So talking about moving fast in a front office that decided to go all in. So the Jets have added um, who they believe, the, the coach that they believe to be the front runner all along and the San Francisco 49ers former defensive coordinator, Robert Sala, um, who happened to take the 49ers defense from one of the worst in the NFL to a consistent top five defense. What do you guys think about this deal? I think that the Jets could have gone offense. I really think that the Jets should have pushed for an offensive guy, but he seems to be a leader. So what do you guys think? I think the biggest – 
right, you go ahead, Mars. No, I took, I, no, go ahead. No, I took it first last time. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I, I think the biggest thing you're looking for in a head coach is someone who can lead men. And that's the, one of the biggest things outside of his actual talent in leading a defense that the 49ers uh, have been like bragging about Salah, that this guy is a leader of the team and, and all his players love him and all of them brag about him. I saw the same thing from Joe Judge when the Giants hired him. He's, he wasn't a big-time coach. He was a special teams guy, but he's someone who led the team. He's able to motivate the players. He'll bring in uh, – what's it called? He'll bring in the corners. He brought in uh, LaFleur already, who his brother is doing well, so hopefully they have the family connection going on. And he'll be someone who can lead the Jets, hopefully, to a couple more wins and consistency and a culture that will, like, be about winning, and that's what you want as a head coach. Joe, you hit the nail on the head there. You want a guy who's going to bring in and establish a different culture than what uh, previous teams have established. Um, Previous uh, regimens have established. Joe Douglas got a guy that he thought was going to be the next leader of the New York Jets in Robert Sala. You've only heard great things out of him in San Francisco for the past four years. This past season with obviously a depleted um, injuries with uh, Nick Bosa missing, uh, tearing his ACL and Simon Thomas tearing his ACL. They've lost a lot of guys to injury this year. He still had the, I believe the fifth ranked defense uh, in the NFL this season. So, which is tough to do. And especially in a division like the NFC West against great offenses. So he obviously does great on defense and I do see him changing the culture there. He seems like a guy who's very outspoken, very, into the game and very into his players at the end of the day. He's very loud when you see him on the sidelines. And I just want that's exactly Listen, I think he's the I think he's the anti gase. I think he's a guy that's gonna change the culture of this team. And I think any coach that the Jets would have hired would have looked like a world beater, would have looked like a genius compared to Adam Gase. But I think that the Jets had one problem and one main issue that this team has one big question that this team has, and that's the quarterback. And that's who's the quarterback of the future? Who could lead this team? Regardless of the players, because you can figure out the players. You can figure out the defense with a good defensive coordinator. The problem with this team and the problem that th- that's going to keep this team from winning is the quarterback question. And I'm concerned that with Salah and with LaFleur, those are those are coaches that are going to keep Sam Darnold, and those are coaches that are going to try to heal Sam Darnold, which I don't think is possible. That's my biggest concern. People say that LaFleur's offense fits Darnold and that the Jets sort of went to Salah because their offense fits Salah. That would be my biggest problem with this hire. If the Jets made that move with the intention of keeping Darnold, I would have a huge problem with that because I don't think that's the right direction for this team. Weren't you the guy saying this a few weeks ago? And I'm going to pull this right out on you. Weren't you the guy saying this a few weeks ago that you didn't want the Jets getting Trevor Lawrence, not getting Trevor Lawrence, tanking for Trevor Lawrence? I agree. I don't think you should tank. I don't think a team should tank for picks. I do not, I do not think a team should tank for picks. I don't think that has to do with the future of the team. Of course it does. There's a monetary problem. There's a monetary problem for Sam Darnold, regardless of what the draft pick is going to be, where the Jets have the opportunity to take to, we're, we're, to take a pick and the second pick in the draft where there's two great quarterbacks available. There's two quarterbacks that I believe are better than Sam Darnold available, regardless of if Trevor Lawrence is there or not. The, doesn't, the Jets didn't have to tank for that. They had two wins and they still have the opportunity to pick a quarterback. And so with that pick, I think the Jets should take that quarterback. It has nothing to do with Trevor Lawrence or not. They don't have Trevor Lawrence. They didn't get Trevor Lawrence. Move on. They don't have to tank to get the second pick. They didn't tank. 
They improved in those last couple of games, which is good. And they still have the chance to pick a quarterback if they want to and not pay $25 million for Sam Darnold's option. So just for the record, what's your optimal offseason right now? After they got Salah and after they hired LaFleur, what do you want as the next steps for the Jets? To trade Sam Darnold for a second-round pick, draft Zach Wilson, and with that second pick, draft either an edge rusher or another offensive uh, another offensive lineman with that 23rd pick that we got from Seattle. Is this like a bygone conclusion that just because Salah is in right now that you're keeping Sam Donald? Because a month ago, it was a conclusion that Sam Donald was gone. I feel like these things so, just change daily. So Adam Schefter, uh, insider for ESPN, reported that the, the hiring of Salah means that Sam Donald's going to stay. Obviously, there's been conflicting reports since then, but Adam Schefter um, said for sure that Sam Donald will be the starting quarterback. Obviously, we don't know uh, going into the future. Look, just at the end of the day, if they do, Salah is a leader. He's a guy that's going to change the culture in New York, and I think that's all you're going to ask for as a head coach. I didn't. I don't think Arthur Smith is that guy to be a culture changer in any place, in my opinion. If that, if that I believe that was a Jets' second guy um, running, but I do not believe he would have been a culture changer, and I do believe Salah is that guy. All right, guys, thank you for tuning in this week to Gotham Sports Report. Um, you can listen to us every Sunday um, at 4.30 p.m. And you could check us out on Spotify uh, under NYU Sports Radio. So thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week.